Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I had every intention to come home from prison and, and murder my aunt. And I remember an old timer in there sat me down. He had about 850 years left to do. And basically, he just convinced me, you know, he said, Rob, you know, it's not your job to go home and do that. Because all that's going to happen is you're going to end up back here like me with your life ruined. Welcome to Stand Up, Speak Up, a Canadian-made podcast highlighting important social issues and giving a voice to remarkable people. Rob Rawlings is working hard to break the cycle of drug addiction in his family. His parents separated while Rob is in elementary school, forcing him to live with his grandparents. Rob's father was an addict, and despite his abrasive nature, Rob continued to seek approval as his son. At the age of 14, Rob was introduced to drugs. It was only a matter of time before he tried opiates and then heroin. To feed his addiction, Rob was led to a life of crime. He'd even steal from his own family. Now, at 43 years old, Rob is in rehab for the ninth time, but grateful that he's healthy overall and grateful to be in what he says is the best recovery home yet. Today, Rob shares his story with us and we'll hear what he's planning to do with life after recovery. My dad was very abusive, you know, at a young age and, uh, you know, being very abusive to my mom. I remember walking in a couple of times, even as young as first grade and seeing him on top of my mom, just wailing on her. And, uh, you know, not much a little guy can do at that age. But even with that going on, I still... It's like I had this drive. I wanted to seek my dad's approval. You know, every little boy wants to be like his dad. You know, that's, that's you know, it, seems, it kind of seems to be the pro quo in life. And my parents split up when I was in elementary school, probably about third grade. And I was still living in um, Missouri at the time. And uh, my dad ended up moving to Tennessee. And, and I lived in, in St. Joe with my mom. Pretty much, you know, she did the best that she could. She was going to college trying to work so you know i was uh, grandma and grandpa's a lot and that was my escape that was my getaway there's nothing in the world like the grandparents love you know i knew i was safe there that was your mom's parents my mom's mom and dad and actually my dad's mom they all actually even after my parents got divorced my dad's mom and uh, my other grandparents and my mom they all got along real well you know my dad's mom knew how he was she didn't agree with it. She was a very church-going lady, and my dad was actually uh, adopted. Were you ever able to find out why your dad turned out the way he did? You know, even to this day, I think about that, and sometimes it's almost like I catch myself trying to make an excuse for him. I know my grandpa wasn't there for him, so you know, I sit there and say, well, you know, he never learned. Um, my grandpa was the kind. Uh, my, my grandpa had a great job. He was the uh, the president of a uh, a big food company back in uh, Elwood, Kansas, and so he, so they had money growing up. And you know, I remember hearing stories about you know when my dad was young for his birthday or Christmas. You know, he would get a pony. That was, I think, my grandpa's way of 
you know, trying to provide for him without being there. He he tried to buy his love, you know, and I even saw that at a young age, whenever I would go over and see my grandpa, you know, even six, seven, eight years old, you know, you give me a hundred dollar bill every time, you know, I would go over. And at that time I didn't know that, uh, you know, that I didn't really know what it meant. You know, I, I thought that it was love, but as I got older, you know, I saw that it was, that's, that's the only way he knew how to express any type of feeling was just to throw money at it. And, you know, even though at a young age, I loved going over there and getting money. Um, still, there was, you know, there was a void there. Did your dad go on to school and did he have a good job? What did your dad do? Honestly, I can't remember my dad working a whole lot at all. It's like he didn't have, I I don't know if he didn't have any drive. I don't know what it was. I know when I was younger, he was a, a real bad alcoholic. Do your grandparents, did they believe he turned out like that due to his genetics? I honestly don't believe so, you know, because they didn't really know a whole lot about his genetics. You know, him being adopted, I found out a lot of genetics later on after my grandparents had passed away. And there was a lot of alcoholism. I found out that I believe it was genetics. There was a lot of alcoholism, a lot of addiction in the family, you know, in, in the bloodline. But at the time, no, I, I don't believe I mean, that. I mean, there's there's an element of nature and nurture. But, you know, I've read a lot of research studies on this. And I've, I've talked to a lot of people that have adopted kids. And their kids versus the adopted child turn out very differently. And right. it's amazing that our genetics are carried through us. And did that, do you think about that a lot? Do you think I have my dad in me so I could also turn into an abuser? Or did, I, you, did I, you turn into an abuser? Did you get quite abusive? I, I, I'm i not going to lie. I was, I was very mentally abusive, very verbally abusive. I wasn't a woman hitter. I didn't believe in that. Maybe pushed down a few times. I never, never close fist to hit a woman. That was one thing. But I knew I had my dad in me as much as I told myself that I was never going to be like him. I grew up exactly like him. He's got a sister. My aunt was also adopted. She was adopted from a different family. And, and she turned out fine, you know, worked her whole life, is retired. And, uh, you know, so the genetic thing, yes, I do believe that. I do believe I had my dad in me. That's why it was very, it's very important for me to break the cycle now because I don't want my kids, you know, I want to show them a better way. I don't, I don't want my kids to turn out like I did. You know, you know, I swore up and down. I wouldn't, you know, I swore up and down. I wouldn't. And some of the shit that I, that I went through, you know, in fifth grade, living with my dad in Tennessee, when my mom moved up here to Akron, um, I remember being locked in my bedroom for the weekends. My dad would set my meals outside my door, you know, and uh, I always felt like I was doing something wrong. You know, what's wrong with me? You know, because I had a younger stepbrother and stepsister. And with me being the oldest one, I took the brunt or I would try to take the heat for him. Do you think your dad locked you in a room so that he wouldn't hurt you or did he lock you in a room to punish you? I think more on the punishment part, or he just didn't want to have to deal with me. You know, him and my stepmom would, would spend all day, every day in their room, smoking their weed, doing whatever they did. You know, I remember this story kind of popped up in my head. I remember I missed my mom so much. I would sleep and try to call her on the phone from down in Tennessee. And as I got older, I learned that this wasn't true, but my dad would come home and he would trick me and he would say he had some type of device on the phone. You know, I know you called, you know, just tell me who it is. And he would trick me into telling on myself, 
yeah, okay, I called grandma. Now, by grandma, I'm talking about his own mom. I wasn't even allowed to call his own mom from down there, let alone my mom. And it got to the point where, you know, I found paraphernalia in the house. Now, I'm like, this is fourth grade. I found paraphernalia in the house. I wanted to get out of there so bad. I took the stuff in my backpack to school, to the principal's office to try to get myself out of there. I didn't know what to do, thinking maybe the police would come and they would remove me from the house so I could come to my mom's up here in Akron. Long story short, they wouldn't do anything because they said I removed it from the house. You know, I couldn't even get help that away. You know, I'm fourth grade taking drugs and, and, and syringes to school. You know, whether he was using syringes or not, he said that they were for, you know, filling worms up with air because the fish like to hit better with them when you're fishing. I don't know. But when, when a little kid takes stuff like that to school, and I didn't even, there wasn't even an investigation. Nobody came by the house or anything. So I, w- I was at like my wit's end. And I used to steal change out of my stepmom's purse. And every time I would get a certain amount, I would call the bus station, ask them, how far can I get? I live in Clarksville, Tennessee. How far can I get on $12? The next day I might get five more dollars. I call back, how far can I get on $17? Trying to make my way to Akron. I stole a set of car keys one time. We had a spare car in the driveway. I would practice backing up and down the driveway. I know how to drive. I was in fourth grade. Practice backing up and down the driveway. Because once I got enough money or I figured out how to get to Akron, I was going to steal the car and try to drive up here. Unfortunately, they found, you know, the money I'd been stealing for the bus in my room. They found the car keys. And, well, you know what happened then. You know, it was, it, it came down even worse. You know, it got even worse on me. Finally, it just got to the point where I think I was just, just too much trouble for him and, he sent me up to the neighbors, you know, for a couple of days and, and called his dad down. The one, you know, my grandfather that wasn't there for him told him, you got to come get Robbie. You know, he just too much. And, and that's how I ended up up in Akron, you know, as a young boy. How was your mom letting you go and live with your dad? She didn't know. And I didn't know. Obviously, it was going to sound like that or she wouldn't know. She's the, she's the best mom in the world, you know. The year before I had uh, moved down with my dad, um, we have family up here in Akron. We came up um, for summer vacation, and my mom ended up meeting my first stepdad. You know, we were on vacation. My mom was real big into Al-Anon because of my dad's drinking. So my mom went to an Al-Anon meeting. My first stepdad was in recovery. He went to AA. They met. Well, they dated long distance for a year, and my mom wanted to move up here to Akron, and I didn't want to go with her. You know, I'm still seeking my dad's approval. I want to go live with dad, you know, so that's how I ended up down there. Come to find out when I got up here, my grandfather brought me up here. Um, my mom had actually had plans. Her dad, my other grandfather, was going to come down and take me out of school physically, kidnap me, whatever you want to call it, take me out of school and bring me back to Akron. Um, just within a few days of, of, of all this transpiring, they had already had it planned out. But uh, my dad had already made arrangements to, to, you know, have me picked up down there. And uh, obviously, you know, they didn't have to go through with that. But I didn't know that they had, had plans in motion to come and take me from school to get me out of there. They knew how bad it was for me. They found out. And this all transpired within a matter of six or seven months of me living in Tennessee. I wasn't even down there that long. How old were you when you first became an addict? My first experience... Um, I, you know, I, I drank as any normal, you know, kid did in, in middle school, a little bit in high school. Never really had a problem with alcohol. I was a, uh, a baseball player. Um, got to play in the League World Series when I was 14, and I was also a wrestler. And I got hurt in high school wrestling. And that was my first experience with opiates. Um, I got prescribed, I think it was Vicodin. And uh, 
I knew something was wrong the first time I took one because it felt way too good. Um, there's a feeling, you know, going up your back once it kicks in, the tingliness, the warmness, it just, something didn't feel right, you know, but it was like, it was like a whole new, uh, you know, a whole new Rob. It was like, yeah, this, this, I, I had, uh, you know, I wasn't shy. I wasn't anxious. You know, it's like the guy that goes out and gets drunk. He can dance a little better. It's almost like I, I felt like I fit in a little better. I just, I, I don't know how to, you know, how to explain it, except it just gave me everything that, that I never had. I've taken drugs for surgeries and I, I feel like I could never judge anybody that becomes a drug addict because I couldn't believe how nice it feels. Like how calm I felt, how optimistic I felt, how like empowered I felt. Mm-hmm. You're right. It's like, it's like, it's like a whole new you. It's you like know? a whole new and you. And, and how long does that last before that new you becomes a really not healthy you? My addiction on pills probably took off real bad, probably about three or four years after I started taking them. Now I, I was still in addiction because, you know, I, I would, I would seek them or I would go to the doctor and, and get pills when I didn't need them. But probably about four or five years after I took that first one, when I was about 17 or 18, I started doing way out of the ordinary stuff. I, um, at the peak of my pill addiction, I, uh, I had a little notebook because at this time, you know, pharmacies and, and doctors, they weren't, they weren't connected together like they are now. And, and I had a book that I kept track of and I had maybe eight or nine different doctors that I would see. I had wrote down what pharmacy I could go to on what day. So that way they wouldn't crisscross. You know, I was in pain management. I had a couple of different surgeons because, uh, at one point in my addiction, you know, I'm, I'm at the doctor's office and, uh, you know, I'm the guy that, you know, that, that addictive behavior. So when the doctor and the nurse leaves, I got to go through shit. I got to open the drawers up, see what's in here. Maybe it might be something I need, you know. And uh, I found some Novocaine. And um, I'm going to take a couple bottles of Novocaine. You never know when you might need Novocaine, right? And who, who said, who thinks shit like that, you know, an, an addict? Uh, you never, never know, you know, put the Novocaine up in the cupboard next to the mayonnaise. Maybe you'll need it someday. I don't know. Next, Rob describes what he eventually does with the Novocaine, numbing part of his body and severely injuring himself just because he knew it would require surgery and that would result in more drugs. Because this part was so disturbing, we've spared you the details. So, you know, I knew I was going to have to have multiple surgeries and, um, <laughs> you know, I... Last thing I thought about was how am I gonna, you know, what am I gonna tell them when I get to the hospital? I, I didn't care about a story because I knew I knew I was gonna get some pills, you know. And I made up some kind of story about how I was working on the car and, and it got caught in a fan blade. Okay, well, most fan blades, yeah, they might do a little bit of damage. They're not gonna cut through your tendon all the way to the bone, you know. Um, but it, it didn't matter. My story worked, and uh, you know, I got what I want. Is that common? Like when you do your groups with. Other addicts, do they all say, yeah, they self-harmed in order to get more drugs? Out of all of the nine treatment centers I've been to, when I tell people that story, I get the same look as the very first person I told many years ago. You know, that batch, like your batshit crazy kind of look, bro. You know, I mean, I've, I've heard the stories where people have punched themselves, you know, punch, punch a wall or something, you know, break their hand or this or that. But to go the far is, you know, you know, that's, that's a whole lot of thinking when you're, you know, you're stealing Novocaine and you're doing, you know, it's almost like plotting, you know, it's just a whole lot of effort put into it. And everybody's just like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah. 
for some reason, it doesn't shock me. Like, I think that an addict's brain is like, they'll do whatever it takes to get the drug, right? People, they rob, they, they hurt other people. They prostitute themselves. Like it kind of sounds pretty realistic based on how powerful the drug is. Exactly. And it comes down to the insanity, you know, um, doing, doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. I've, I've used the Novocaine on my hand before and had it smashed with a sledgehammer and told, told the doctors that the gun safest fell on it or something, you know, uh, it just, it, it, it was, and it was starting to get bad. And it, right after all this was going on was about the time that, uh, pharmacies and, and doctor's offices were starting to get connected. So, you know, um, who knows what I would have did, you know, if it would have kept going, going that way with that, you know, I had to put my off the streets for a minute, was on oxys for a minute until I got introduced to, you know, my first little bag of dope, you know, I'm, the last time I took Vicodin, I had to take 43 of them at once just to catch a buzz. And it was doing so much damage to my stomach and my liver. How would you get the money for 43 Vicodin? What would the street value of that be? At the time for for the Viking, I was paying probably about three dollars a pill. So, you know, even on the low, if I could find them for two dollars a pill, that's still eighty six dollars. You know, for for one buzz and grandma, both my grandmas, my my grandmas were probably my biggest enablers. Bless their hearts because they they had no clue; they were oblivious. You know, I'm living in Ohio at this time. They're they're back in Missouri. Um, you know, they they really had no clue. So how how, and, would, how would you get them to give you money? So you'd call them up and say, "Hey, Grandma." I mean, I, you know, we just had a baby at the time, so obviously I exploited that avenue. You know, the baby needed diapers, baby needed formula. Wick got cut off. You know, they cut the food stamps off because we couldn't make it down there because the car broke down to fill out the food stamp stuff. Just ex- I exploited the hell out of my son, telling him, you know, we needed money for the utilities, Grandma. You know, we can't have no no heat in the winter time with the baby here. You know, stuff like that. And, uh, it, it really wasn't hard. You know, I had insurance at the time and, uh, insurance was actually starting to catch on, you know, so I can only bill so often through my insurance, you know, still have my little book, you know, on what doctors I could go to and stuff, but the pharmacies, they were starting to, to connect the pharmacies together. So that was a little bit trickier. Sometimes I would even drive, you know, a hundred miles away to find a little mom and pop pharmacy out in the middle of the sticks that I knew wasn't connected. You know, I mean the, the lengths that a person will go to just to fill a prescription for, for 20 Vicodin, you know, I mean, to drive two hours, just to get 20 pills that you're going to take as soon as you get them. And the buzz is probably going to be worn off before you get home, but you don't, you don't think about that. You don't, you don't think about after you don't think about all the shit you got to go through to get it. You don't, it just, when, when, when you get that on your mind, it, it just, it consumes you. You know, it totally takes over. At what point did you start to say, okay, I'm going to have to, um, I might have to steal. When did your addiction turn you into a criminal? I had already started on heroin um, and I was already past the point of snorting it, you know, probably about 10, 11 years ago, um, shortly after I started shooting it. I remember the first time I even shot up, I was actually outside of an AA meeting. I was with a girl and. I always snorted it. I couldn't get my way to show me how to shoot it. And, and I asked her, I said, you know, I said, I said, what's the difference between the way you do it and the way I do it? And she said, the difference between the Chevy and the Cadillac, baby, you want to try? And before she could finish the sentence, I had my arm out and it was over. And once you put something in, in a needle and, and load it up and do it that way, for me, there was no going backwards. It was game on. 
if I didn't have a needle to shoot it up, I would either turn it down or I would spend hours trying to find, you know, a rig to do it the way I wanted to do it. And, and at the time, you know, my mom wasn't, she wasn't real hit to what I was doing. So, you know, I could get money out of her. You know, I'm, I got only child syndrome, bless her heart. You know, she went to Al-Anon, uh, we're master manipulators and, uh, you know, I'm, I manipulated the hell out of her probably about 10 years ago is, uh, is when, you know, I, I would start, start having to steal, you know, um, stolen from her, um, stolen from my grandmother's, you know, when I went to prison, you know, it was actually, um, because I stolen checks from my grandma, her mom, and I forged them. And, uh, my grandma didn't want me to go to prison, but my mom had power of attorney over her and my mom was the one to press charges. Now, obviously they gave me probation. They gave me a chance to try to do the right thing. But when you're in active addiction, um, probation doesn't matter. You don't, you don't think about stuff like that. County jail. That's a break for me. When I get arrested, I get caught. I'm relieved. I feel comfortable because I can go in and rest. I don't have to do dirt no more. I don't have to look over my shoulders no more. So, so that was good. But wouldn't you go in there and have to detox or could you still be on drugs in county jail? Not so much county jail. Uh, in prison, you can, but in county jail, you know, for me, um, I would detox, but the brain is, is a powerful thing. And, and, and I know others, they detox really bad in jail, puke piss shit all over themselves. When I would get to jail, because I, I knew that there was no way for me to get anything. It was, it was a mind over matter thing for me. Did I not feel good? Of course. You know, um, did I have stomach issues and had to use the bathroom? Of course. But it always seemed like when I was on the streets and I would try to quit, my detox symptoms would be a lot worse. And I, I think, and, and when I think about it, I think that's just my brain was trying to trick me into, you know, thinking how bad it really was because when I go to jail, you know, it, it wasn't that bad. It, you know, it, it was it was a mind over matter thing. So I would go in, get cleaned up, get an oil change, you know, what I would call it, get freshened up and come back out and hit the streets. How many times would you have been in and out of jail? Probably spent a total of four or five years between jails and prison in my life. So wait, how old are you now? 43. Okay, so you didn't really get into heroin and and um, fentanyl and all that till you were like 30? That, that, that's about when I started shooting dope. Yeah, when I was 30 years old. How did you hold off for that long? Like, how did that not come sooner? I just, I don't know if it was the crowd that I was hanging out with. But at the time, you know, there was just a whole lot of pills. You know, the, the pills were the big thing in the area that I was living in. Oxys were real big. Um, you know, I was messing around with oxys. And I, I think a lot of it just had to do with, with the crowd, you know, that I was running around with. And, and I, had heard, I had heard about, you know, Heron and I, a little bit about it. And I don't know if I was scared or maybe subconsciously I knew that the first time I did it, you know, I would be hooked. I, I guess I never really thought about it that much, you know. I had actually, you know, my pill guy was, a, was the first one that introduced me to dope, you know. And, and when he sold me a $20 bag of dope and I, and I could stretch that out for a day versus a hundred something dollars on pills. Just a quick interjection. I'm Zach Tolstoy, one of the founders of Stand Up Speak Up. Our podcast is just one part of the Stand Up Speak Up brand. We are supported by an online store of the same name where we sell a variety of artisan products. 
We have an ongoing blog series with over a dozen contributors, and we offer a series of interactive workshops. Throughout the different iterations of Stand Up Speak Up, our core message and purpose have always been the same. To create a site that allows our customers and us more opportunities to speak up about and support causes, organizations, and groups that we're passionate about, and that of course could use additional support. My mother and I have learned about allyship over the years from what feels like a thousand and one places and people. We want to encourage members of this fantastic Stand Up Speak Up community to come along and learn with us. So along with our team, we created this workshop featuring videos, articles, and exercises that have really helped the two of us in our own journey towards allyship. Don't worry, it doesn't cost any money, and you don't need to make an account to access the information. We want to make our workshop as accessible as possible because we believe in our message and understand the importance of spreading awareness. The Ally Workshop is split into eight parts, including interactive quizzes and helpful videos. It's intended to introduce you to new skills and courses of action in the world of allyship. The workshop is easy to use and can be done entirely on your cell phone, tablet, or computer at your own pace. With each of the eight sections, taking an average of about 15 minutes or so to complete, or a breezy couple hours on a Sunday afternoon. Okay, so if I can just clarify vocabulary. So pills is like pharmaceutical drugs? Yeah, Percocet, Vicodin, Oxy. And then dope would be heroin. What else would be in dope? Just stay around for a while um, until, you know, all this other synthetic fentanyl and carfentanyl stuff, you know, came out. I was probably six or seven, maybe eight years into my addiction with uh, with shooting dope before I'd even got introduced to fentanyl. And uh, I actually got introduced to it by accident. I was supposed to be getting cocaine and, and it wasn't cocaine. It was fentanyl. And for people, at least my experience with shooting fentanyl, it doesn't last as long, but it hits you a lot harder. So I knew it wasn't, you know, I knew it was a different kind of dope. And I started inquiring about it. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the guy that likes the bigger punch, you know. Um, I, I like to see how far, you know, I can push that envelope. And <laughs> it got to the point where I had OD'd. I was, I was OD'ing and falling out in the bedroom at my mom's house so many times. When I went to prison, I had had this tattoo put on my leg, up on, on the upper part of my le uh, left leg. Um, Route 8 is a, uh, a highway that runs through Akron. And I had the top part of the 8 put right over this big vein on my leg. So I always knew where it was. Because every time I would shoot up in my arm, I would fall out, pass out. And I didn't want my mom to find me dead. So I would time it. And when I would shoot up in my leg, I had 71 seconds to put everything away in case I died. I didn't want my mom. If my mom was going to find me dead, I didn't want her to find the spoon and the rig and the needle and my arm tied off like that. I didn't want her to see her son like that. Okay, so 71 <laughs> seconds you had. That's really interesting. Seconds. 71 seconds. To put everything away in case I died. That, that's where my addiction was taking me. I didn't care if I died. I cared enough about my mom that I didn't want her to find me with the paraphernalia. But I cared more about my addiction because I didn't care if I died or not. I was, I, I was trying to justify, well, at least if I hide the needle on the rig, it won't be so bad on her. You know, if she finds her son dead, maybe she'll just think I died of natural causes. But you know what? I'm not going to be here. You don't worry about it. So, so you know, um, and, and that's crazy. So what did you go to prison for? 
theft and forgery um, of uh, when I stole my grandmother's checks and forged them for dope. I uh, stole checks, made them out to my girlfriend's mom at the time. She was oblivious to it. So her mom cashed them. My mom had found out about it, reported them stolen. And actually, they were going to go after my girlfriend and her mom because, uh, you know, it was her mom's account that was used. My grandma still at this point, you know, Rob wouldn't do nothing. It had to be his girlfriend, you know, it had to be her. And it wasn't. It was all me. You know, my girlfriend knew about it, but it, it was all me. So if I really wanted to be it, you know, I, I could let them go down for it. But that just wasn't the right thing to do. You know, I was the one doing it. Her mommy had nothing to do with it. Her mom was nice enough to cash him for us. Her mom was our biggest enabler. I remember in a nine-month period from April to January, and I'll never forget this number. Her mom gave us $73,325 in cash. What? In nine months from April uh -huh. to January. $73,325. I will never forget that number. I used to write it down in the book, Carla, because someday I would hit the lottery and I want to be able to repay her back. I would write it down seven days a week. Not one day went by where we got less than 300. The average was between seven and 800 every day for nine months. Some days we would get 1,200. Her mom had this sick relationship. She would call her mom up. You know, she's, she's 12 years younger than me and, and She's a spoiled brat. You know, she would call her mom up. I remember coming in, in one time and she's got her top off sitting on the floor, kicking and screaming like a baby. And I'm like, what's wrong? This bitch is only going to give us 300 day. I'm like, what? what? Are you serious? You, you, you know, you're complaining about that. But she would go to the bank um, with her mom on Cuyahoga Falls, up in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. They would meet at the PNC because sometimes I would go and it got to the point where it disturbed me so much I would quit going. I try to talk her out of going. We'll figure out another way to get money because no mother and daughter should be like this. Next on Stand Up Speak Up, Rob tells us about a rare, touching moment with his father that he'll never forget. We'll also learn more about his time in rehab and how Rob is now using music to help on his journey. One of the ways we can have this podcast and continue to share and help people tell their stories is because of our store, Stand Up Speak Up Apparel. Every time I have a podcast guest, I get inspired by something about them to create a shirt. And the one that came out from my discussion with Rob is Don't Boost Stuff. We didn't really talk about that in Rob's podcast interview, but one of the things he talks about that a lot of addicts do is they go and boost stuff out of stores and then they sell it. And he told this really, you know, interesting stories about how they do it and how they get around it and how do they continue to boost even the same store over and over again. And, you know, he says to this day, for some stores, he still won't even go in just for fear and just the anxiety that sets in because now that he's sober, he knows what he did was so horribly wrong. And he said even during the boosting, he knew it was really wrong, but he was so desperate to get cash to get more drugs, which is not unique for any addict. So one of the shirts we have inspired by Rob in the store is Don't Boost. Is your dad still alive? No, um, that's, uh, you know, me and my dad, um, as he got older, I, I tried to, I, I still, still even at 42 years old, um, I, I was still trying to seek his approval. And uh, last year, um, when my grandmother passed away, she left me about $11,000, my mom's mom. And uh, 
I had blown through it in about a month on dope. And I talked to my dad on Christmas Eve. Actually, it was a couple years ago. I'm sorry. I talked to my dad on Christmas Eve. Um, 2014 was the last time I talked to him. I when he had gotten in an argument. I told him, fuck you, and I hung up on him. Got arrested the next day because I had some warrants out. Ultimately, ended up going to prison. And I tried to call him from prison three months later to apologize, and he was dead. Didn't get a chance to apologize to him. And uh, even though I wrote, you know, uh, one of my little things about about him called Dear Dad, I, I still think about that all the time, you know, because I wonder, even after all the shit I went through and all the stuff he's done, you know, I still was seeking his approval, you know, 43 years old. I still just wanted my dad in my life. Did he, did he ever say to you that he loved you and he was proud of you or what? I remember a few times, you know, when, uh, oh boy, when his mom was dying, my grandmother that I grew up with and the one I spent most of the time with, it was, uh, probably about five years ago. And me and my girlfriend at the time, um, I drove back from, from Ohio here to Missouri. I, I was supposed to come back and say goodbye to her. She was on her way out. And uh, I remember, you know, when I got there, my dad had told me he was proud of me that I was doing good and whatnot. But that night, and I vaguely remember this, I had gotten drunk and I got my girlfriend lost in this strange town. So she had to call my dad. And uh, long story short, my dad got me back to the hotel. And I remember him, I remember him tucking me in bed. And I was crying. And I looked up at him and said, what's wrong? And I told him, I said, you know, this is all I ever wanted from you. was to you to tuck me in when I was a kid. And he told me he loved me. And uh, I'll never forget that, you know. Why do you think he found it so hard to just... Did he have so much shame, do you think? I, I think he did a lot of it, you know, and I think as time got, time went on and, you know, it's, it's just like, um, you know, regrets, you know, uh, I've got them in life, you know, uh, I just, you know, it's, it's one thing where I'll just, I'll just call tomorrow. I'll just do it tomorrow. And you push it off for so long and you just stuff it for so long that, uh, it, it just, it gets, it gets buried, you know? And, uh, you know, I, I know I have that problem with a few things myself, you know, stuff with my children, um, you know, and even though he wasn't an active addiction, I, uh, I just, uh, he wasn't a happy person. You know, I think he had a lot of regrets in life, you know, and he just, you know, when, when my grandma died, he almost died a year to the day later, you know, and in this process, you know, of, my dad dying he um i got a phone call from my mom my aunt which was his sister was actually supposed to call to the prison he wanted to talk to me one last time so he tried to reach out and um the year before my grandmother had died she left half of her estate to my aunt and half of her estate to my dad about seventy thousand dollars and because my dad refused to sign over his half to my aunt she chose to play god and not call the prison and forged documents and stole all that money from me, which she doesn't realize if she would let me talk to him, I would have gave her all that money. I don't, I didn't care about the money. He tried to reach out to me and, and he doesn't even know. I mean, I know he knows now he's in heaven, but he, you know, at the time was probably wondering, why isn't Rob calling? You know, why isn't Rob calling? You know, I want to talk to him one last time. And I found all this out in prison. And 
I had every intention of coming home from prison and 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 murdering my aunt. And I remember an old timer in there sat me down. He had uh, he had about eight hundred and fifty years left to do. And we sat down and I had a long talk one day. And basically he just convinced me, you know, he said, Rob, you know, it's not your job, you know, to go home and do that because all that's gonna happen is you're gonna end up back here like me with your life ruined. He said, God will take care of people, you know, you believe in karma? And I said, yes. He said, he said, you know, you got a family out there. He said, you don't want to be me. And it's crazy because that's the same thing I tell these young kids coming into rehab or these young kids that I see that haven't done it, you know, nine times like I have. You don't have to be me. I've done it for you. So, you know, to this day, my aunt still won't talk to me for whatever reason. She was like my sister. So when I lost my dad, I lost her too. She just thinks I'm a drug addict. That's what she called my mom. You know, she doesn't, uh, you know, drug addict piece of shit. You know, that's what I was her. But that's her loss, not mine. What can I do to make addicts not feel like they're the shittiest part of society? When I see an, an active addict on the streets, like, what can I do? I don't, I don't know really, Carla, if there's anything you can do, you know, um, unless you unless you're either um uh, in the same been in the same spot they've been in um or you know i've walked walked through the shoes that they have you know i um you know we've got people here that you know are regular clinicians um but the majority of the people that work here and have their cdca and and, and all the licensing and stuff like that are people that are in recovery people that have your people that have years of sobriety so they dance with that devil. They chase that dragon. They know what it's like. And and, and I, I open my arms to anybody that's willing to help me. But I, I personally can relate more to somebody that when I say something, they're like, yes, yes, I feel the same way. So that's kind of why I'm doing what I'm doing, because I want other people out there to know they're not alone. For so many years, I thought I was alone. I'm like, man, why do I feel like this? And I don't want somebody else to ever have to feel that way again, you know? Um, like I said, it's the loneliest place when you're sitting there by yourself and the only thing you may have is your phone and, and you got nothing else, no money, and you're just you're ready to die. You scroll through and you might see somebody telling their story, but it's their story also. It's, it's the same, you know, and that's just even talking about even talking about this gives me goosebumps, you know, because I know what it was like out there. You know, this this place has saved my life. You know, we're like we're like a family here. And uh you know, people have asked me before if I would ever go back and change anything I've ever done. And I tell them today, I tell them absolutely not. There's not one thing I will go back and do different. I, I wouldn't change anything. That's the truth. You know, I, I have so many blessings. How do you get ready for integration back into the workforce? Like what job do you see yourself doing or what are you thinking? Probably with you getting ready to go in the summertime, I'm, I'm going to try to maybe get into some type of some type of construction. Um, there's a guy here that uh, has worked asphalt for many, many years. You know, say so get a couple of us, you know, some jobs. Um, it's just when you have uh, a, a lot of felonies and you know tattoos all over your body, and you know you just you get uh, you get profiled when you want to do certain job applications. There's only certain places that will hire me. You know, and, and I get that. I understand that. I don't have a problem working in the factory the rest of my life. I do still have my driver's license. That's one thing I ain't screw up. Um, so I, I do have a driver's license, which is a bonus. You know, I, for maybe get a, a job driving or something. But that's one thing they do here, though. You know, they take us to like out to the resource center, the job center, and you know, we put applications in. 
and stuff like that, you know. Um, and I, one thing I am actually working on that I didn't tell you about before I leave here, my counselor is going to help me get my CDCA. Um, chemical dependency counselor associate, I think is what the last letter stands for. That's something I've always wanted to do for years was to be some type of counselor. Um, it, it would be my dream to be able to go talk to high school kids about addiction, you know, so she already promised me she will help me get my CDCA. One of the guys that's been here almost four months, one of the vets is actually taking his CDCA test right now. And that's why this place is different because the owner's all about that. You know, I mean, he, he's the one, he, you know, he, he pushes for that, for stuff like that, you know. Every other treatment place, like I said, you go in and do your time out the door, and if you need something, call us. But we're like a family here. You know, we look out for each other. We take care of each other. One of the ways that Rob has been dealing with recovery is through writing music. We'll hear some of his work coming up at the end, but first he shares a bit about how he was introduced to writing. I've been only writing a little over a month, and the very first thing I wrote um, was the one about my dad called Dear Dad. Um, the owner here, Sebastian, has got all my videos up on the uh, on the webpage here at California Palms. The very first one, like I was saying, that I wrote was about my dad not being there for me. Well, come to find out, it was actually on his birthday, which was February 2nd. I sat out in the group room for almost 11 hours, and I had never wrote nothing before. You know, they told me, well, try writing in a journal. Well, I'm a guy. I don't believe guys write in journals. At least I don't want to call it a journal, okay? I mean, you know, I got my ego here. So I just, I started writing these, these sentences out and it just started flowing. And I was thinking about my dad and all this hate and all this anger and pain was coming out. And I kind of turned it in, in, into that little video that I did. I'd actually had a beat that I had downloaded um, off the internet for it. But with me being where I'm at here, I can't do that till I get out of here and, and get to the studio. So I'm like, you know what? I, I want to share this with somebody because I know other people out there, other addicts have father issues. Well, come to find out the day I wrote that was my dad's birthday, you know, and he had, he had passed away, you know, the circumstances of, of the last time we talked and it blew me away. And, and when I read it to everybody, they're like, bro, you know, you, you, that's awesome. So I'm like, all right, well, I'll try it again. I wrote another one and, and it just, it, it just seemed to be getting better and better. And anything I ever write or talk about, it's just, it's just my experience. You know, I don't ever try to tell somebody how to, how to stay sober um, I promote sobriety, but I don't I don't necessarily promote AA. I don't promote NA. Do what you got to do if you can sober. I'm all about it. You see, I'm sitting around, got these thoughts on my mind. Maybe I'm just a little crazy or I'm just driving blind. I get so clouded up, sometimes I can't think straight. Addiction says she loves me, but I know it's really hate. Always trying to bait or even infiltrate. Better yet, sedate or even worse, dictate. Yeah, that's my disease. It can make me sick in the head. If I don't treat the symptoms, then I'm bound to be dead. Alarm clock waking me up instead of being revived. Not a quitter, but a fighter. This disease I survived. I can't control what the world throws at me, just my perception. And I have to be careful, because an exception can cause depression. It's progress, not perfection. Every day a self-reflection. It's about connection, not rejection. The right direction will bring protection. No more injections or infections. Took suggestions, no discretion. It's a passion, not obsession. All my thoughts that I'm expressing. It took me zero to a hundred and a hundred back to zero. It brought me from my knees and turned me into a superhero. I do instead of try. If not, I'ma die. Heroin gave me wings to fly, then took away my sky. No more running from the cops or acting like a scallywag. Or sitting in a county whipping meals in a garbage bag. Today I work a program, got that God style swag. I keep my head held high, chin up, chest out is my hashtag. I love y'all, God bless. 
Unfortunately, Rob's story is not that unique. And I think that's what is so incredibly sad because a lot of people would have given up on someone like Rob. They would have said, oh, he's been in rehab eight times. He's been in and out of jail. He can't, you know, there's just no hope for him. But he's proven them wrong. And I think that he went to his next recovery place, the one he's in right now, at the right time in his life when I think he was ready to commit. And I think that recovery center is very unique and advanced in their thinking. And they've set it up so it feels like a family and almost as though the guy that runs the recovery is almost taking on the role of a parent. And a lot of people believe that in order to heal, people need to be reparented which is a philosophy and a therapy that you have someone that shows you the right way to parent. And, you know, Rob talks about a lot about how his early days, just wanting his dad to love him and his dad just didn't have it in him to express that. And his dad was really messed up and and he struggled with addiction and, and issues. And so I think that when Rob said, I want the cycle to to stop, I hear that from a lot of addicts. And I think it's really, really hard. And more than anything, I wish that there was more recovery centers like the one Rob's in. I wish that that's how all of them worked. I mean, a lot of addicts I talk to go into state-run recoveries and detoxes, and it's really no better than a jail environment. It's just a way to get them off the drugs, but they don't do a lot of rehabilitation with that. And it's expensive, recoveries. So a lot of addicts, if they don't have insurance, they don't have the money. So they have to go to the cheapest of the cheap, which is usually in and out within, you know, 48 hours and back on the street where they were. So it's almost like a detox for them. So they can spend less money on the drugs when they leave because it cleans out your system. So you don't need as much drug to get you high. What I really liked about Rob's story is that It just tells people that it can be done if they're given the opportunity and the right nurturing. I think he's found a lot of expression through his rap songs, which are really incredible. I recommend you go on to our Facebook group, Stand Up, Speak Up group, and he posts a lot of them there. And they really are inspiring and he's created a real following. And I think that people can really relate to his journey and his story. And that's why I really wanted to share it on this podcast, because I believe that based on, you know, Howard and Rob and other guests I've had on, recovery, you know, is possible. You just have to have the will and most importantly, an environment that nurtures and supports you. And I feel like that's what the government should be focused on right now, instead of focused on so many people being in the jail system, a lot of the jail system is full of people that have addiction issues and mental health issues and just throwing them in jail actually worsens the problem and creates more trauma for them and more nightmares when they get out. The first thing they want to do is forget and take drugs. But I know I'm preaching right now to people that already feel the same way as this is that's why you're probably listening to my podcast because you have a big heart. And you believe people deserve a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, eighth, ninth, tenth chance, whatever it takes to get it right. 
The Stand Up Speak Up podcast is made in Canada. Produced and hosted by Carla Stevens Tolstoy. Co-production, editing, and narration by Joel at East Coast Radio Creative. Copyright 2018. Find us online at standupspeakupapparel.com. If you have a moment, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to Stand Up Speak Up. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network.